It's my joy to be given the privilege of bringing God's Word to you today. It's always a joy to preach God's Word. I find it an even greater joy to preach God's Word to you, to this group of people. Because you receive it so well, it's clear that you delight to hear God's Word, and that makes our work as pastors and as preachers even sweeter than it would be otherwise. Um, the original title for this sermon is How to Look at Others. As I've been meditating on the text this week, I've wondered if it shouldn't have been titled How to Treat Others, because the text is actually about how we treat people, about loving our neighbor, not treating them in a way that's partial, <clears throat> biased. But it's true, as this text shows, the way that we treat people is a reflection of how we see them. How we treat people is a reflection of how we see them. Or, to say it the other way around, how we view people leads to how we treat them. Does that make sense? The passage we're considering this morning is very relevant to our lives. James is a very practical writer. It's a very practical book. And this is him at his most practical. How we treat one another. On a regular basis. It's relevant to our lives as Christians. It's relevant to our lives in the church. In the body of Christ. It's relevant to our everyday lives here. In this city. As we go about our business. And the more I'm reflecting on this passage. The more challenging it's been for me. In my own heart. As I think about how I look at people. How I treat people. I I sense that this passage will be heard by each of you differently based on your experiences. I don't know what it is that each of you have faced in your lives, but I do know that this is God's Word. It's true. It's helpful for all of us. And that there is hope for forgiveness and restoration that I am clinging to and that I offer to you this morning from God's Word. So, as we go again to God's Word, let me just pray one more time and ask Him for help Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning ready to listen, ready to hear what it is that you have to say. And we pray that as we read your word, as we reflect on it together, that you would help us, that you by your spirit would be allowing us to to see the truth clearly, that your spirit would be convicting our hearts, areas of our hearts that need convicting, and that you would work in us Repentance for our sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And a desire more than anything to be living lives that would look like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to work through this text this morning by asking a series of questions that are answered by this text. And I hope that this approach will be helpful as we... Um, seek to open up the passage so that we can see it clearly. James is a, a pastor in the early church. He was the first pastor of the Church of Jerusalem. He's writing to some Christians who have been scattered by persecution to the areas around Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and even into uh, Asia Minor. And he writes a letter that would be circulated to these young Christians, and that would be an encouragement to them as they're seeking to live faithful lives before the Lord where they are. Um, We've looked in chapter 1, we've had three sermons on chapter 1, we've looked at the subject of trials. How do we think about the difficulties that come into our lives as Christians? James says, well, God has brought them into our lives for a purpose. Second thing he looks at is the subject of temptations. How do we think about the difficulties that come when we're tempted to evil? And he tells them that we shouldn't blame God or blame others for our temptation and sin, but realize that sin comes from ourselves, comes out of our own hearts. We should repent of that sin. Last week we looked at how it is that we should approach God's Word. 
Now he turns to the subject of partiality, is the word that's used here. So the first question that I'm going to ask is, what is the sin that's being talked about in this passage? Partiality is a word that might not be as useful for us. It's not a word that we use that often. Let me read these first four verses again. And just be thinking to yourself, how would you define the sin of partiality from this text? Thinking of that. What is the sin? Let me read. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What is this sin of partiality that James is talking about? It's called partiality in the English Standard Version. Some translations call it favoritism. Both of these words are fine, but like I said, slightly older English. I don't know if any of you have used either of those words this week as you've gone about your business. Point number one, James is talking about the sin of prejudice. The sin of prejudice. Prejudice, I think, is a more helpful word for us. I think it really gets at the nub of what's going on here. It's prejudice. And James calls it a sin. What is the sin of prejudice? Well, I think we can see from this passage, prejudice has to do with how we look at people. And it's judging someone based on appearances. And based on things external to the person. Here, how someone appears, how nicely they're dressed, how wealthy they are, or at least appear to be. That's prejudice. That's how you look at someone. Prejudice, the perspective, leads to discrimination, which is then the action of treating someone differently based on that prejudice. And James is talking about both, how we look at people and how we treat them. So it's prejudice and discrimination. Discrimination is treating people in different ways based on our prejudice, our prejudging of them, which we do based on appearances. Now, let me just say that word prejudice is kind of a hot-button word. And this isn't simply a sermon about prejudice in general. We can't cure the world of prejudice, even if we wanted to. In a world of sin, like the world that we live in, there will always be prejudice until Christ returns. This is a sermon on this biblical text, which teaches Christians what God thinks of prejudice. And my concern is with you all, with this group of Christians. We don't want to be pointing the finger out and judging the world of the prejudice that's out there. What James does is point the finger in at us Christians and is asking these Christians why they're showing prejudice considering all that God has done for them. So this is what we want to do this morning. We want to think about how it is that we, as Christians, relate to each other and how we relate to those around us in the world. Now James starts this section with a command, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality or prejudice or discrimination as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? Show no prejudice as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you say it that way, James? Well, I'm not sure why he said it that way. What does it mean? Don't show prejudice as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, at the very least, it means that having faith in Jesus is not compatible with treating people in a way that's prejudiced. So he's saying, you're holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't at the same time be 
treating people in a way that's partial. Looking at Jesus with the eyes of faith is incompatible with looking at people with the eyes of prejudice. Those two things should be unthinkable. Now, the good thing about this passage is, if we're confused as to what verse 1 means, he follows it up with a situation that illustrates this command, verses 2 through 4. So before we go further as to thinking through what this means, let's look at the illustration, verses 2 through 4. I'm going to read it again. If a man wearing a gold ring, fine clothing, comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James gives a very practical illustration. And what happens in this story, in this illustration? Well, two people walk into church. They walk into an assembly, into a church service. Like this. One is rich, one is poor. One is in nice clothes, one is in dirty clothes. And James uses some vivid language to describe how the men are dressed. He says the rich man has some gold accessories on, gold ring, and he has nice clothing, fine clothing. What would that look for us today? How would we recognize a rich person today if he were to walk through the door? Well, in Dubai, he'd probably valet park his Maserati on the way in, right? He's dressed in expensive, trendy clothes, this year's fashion, not only that, but this season's fashion, which means that he paid full price for them. You have to do that to get this season's fashion. He's probably in Italian leather shoes. I've only heard about Italian leather shoes. He's sporting a huge Rolex watch on one wrist, on the other a huge gold bracelet. He has hair, because the rich can afford to have hair. And the hair is perfectly cut, perfectly styled, perfectly gelled. Right? He smells of expensive cologne. And how do we treat such a person here in Dubai? Treat them with honor, with respect. Take care of them. Make sure they're well taken care of. Give them a nice seat somewhere that would be comfortable for them, probably in the back. Probably wouldn't want to be in the front. And the poor man. James uses one phrase to describe him, shabby clothes. What would that look like today here in Dubai? Probably wearing older clothes. Probably dirty, clearly worn and worn out. His jeans are ripped, his shirt is stained, clearly wearing work clothes from the week on his day off because he can't afford to have other clothes. His hair, well, if he has it, it'll be clear that he hasn't showered since waking up this morning. And how do we treat such a person? Do we greet him at all? What happens here? The two men are treated very differently. The rich man, he's greeted, he's honored, led to a good seat. The poor man, well, the greeter doesn't even seem to get up for him. Kind of points out a place where he can either stand or sit on the floor, out of the way. Now, if you're here and you're not one of our ushers, don't be looking back at our ushers and giving them the evil eye. We love our ushers. I've only seen our ushers treat people with honor and respect, which is... Great. This isn't a message only for ushers. Don't be checking out. This is a message for all of us as Christians. And though he uses one specific illustration of how a person is greeted at a church, this sin shows up in many different areas in our lives and at many different times and places. So don't check out yet. How does this 
story illustrate the sin of prejudice that James talks about in verse 1? Well, two people walk into church and are treated very differently based on what? Well, based on appearances, based on externals, how rich they are or appear to be. And what did the greeter do in the story? He looked at each person and he sized them up and he made a split second assessment and decision about the two people. And what was that assessment? He made an assessment of importance, an assessment of significance, an assessment of value based on a person's appearance. And that led to that greeter treating them according to the value that he placed on them. And that's the sin of prejudice that James is getting at. Assessing the worth and value of a person based on mere externals. Things as insignificant as how much money a person has, which is absolutely insignificant in the perspective of eternity. How do you assess people? We all do it. We all go through life looking at people and making assessments, making decisions. How would a person have to appear for you to regard them or for you to dismiss them, for you to greet them and want to get to know them or for you to dismiss them? Now James follows up the illustration with an explanation in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what's the issue with prejudice? Well, when you make a snap decision about the importance of a person and dismiss them based on that assessment, what James says is you put yourself in the place of a judge, in the place of God. And, and a biased judge, he says, at that. James is referring to the Old Testament law regarding judging people justly in court. And he uses this analogy of the way that we view people, we take on the job of a judge. God tells his people in Leviticus 19, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. What does God mean by that? Well, he says, you judges in Israel, don't assume that the poor are always innocent, because they aren't. And don't assume that the rich, is all, or the rich people are always right, because they're not. When you judge in court, you need to judge justly based on the righteousness of a person. Don't be biased. And don't accept bribes from the rich. Now, we can show prejudice based on different things. Here, James uses um, wealth and riches and appearance. But often prejudice is on the basis of other things. Not just how rich someone is or how good they look. But other things like race, ethnicity, culture. The nation that someone is from, their job, their line of work, their school, what school they're in, school they can afford, their friends, who they know. There's lots of different external qualities of a person that we would assess and make a judgment based on. We all do it. My wife has found that as she goes around this city, she's treated differently than when I'm around. As an Asian person, a Chinese woman, when she's by herself with our kids, she's often treated dismissively by people, run over by people, even ignored when she's out and about shopping. Unless I'm around, a white American. I'm sure many of you have experienced prejudice much worse than that in this city and in this world. Bev was sharing her experience with a new friend in our home this week, and the friend had had a similar experience, being dismissed by people as she went about the city. People being nice to others, so she saw them being nice, but ignoring her. 
but she said she noticed she's always treated better when she dresses up in nice clothes. Now, what's behind that? Why do people tend to regard people based on appearance or economic status? We have a tendency to be concerned with people we think could benefit us in some way, people that we think are important. Rich person, we think, could benefit me, maybe financially, maybe if not financially, at least through the status or the popularity that their acquaintance could bring us in terms of other people. Now, it's one thing to be treated this way by the world, but James' concern isn't what the world does, but what we as Christians do. How do we act as Christians, those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? But perhaps you've experienced prejudice like this, even from Christians, like the story here. Well, let me ask you all of us here together, an applicational question. This, I think, gets to the heart of James' concern here. How do we live as Christians, even on a Friday when we gather together as an assembly? So here's an application question. Who did you talk to this morning before church? Who did you greet? Why? Why those people? Maybe a tougher question, who did you not talk to this morning before church? Why didn't you talk to them? Why didn't you greet them? Maybe you came in late. Who are you going to go find and talk to right after service? Why those people? What do they look like? What benefit are they to you? What people are you not going to talk to after service? And why not those people? Now, we're all limited. We're all limited people. None of us has the time or the energy to engage every single person gathered in this room on a Friday, as much as some of us would like to, the extroverts. I don't ask these questions to heap guilt on you, but because a passage like this gets to the heart of who we relate to, how we relate to them, and why. So we have to ask ourselves the question, who am I interested in knowing? being around? And who am I not interested in knowing and being around? And why? Is it only the benefit that those people give you? Helping you feel comfortable? Helping you feel known by people that you think are important? Perhaps you've been ignored, even here at Redeemer. You come and try to get to know people, but you feel invisible. You ever had that experience? Sometimes that can feel worse than someone actually being mean to you. Just, it's like they see right through you. There's, there's no light in their eyes that they even see that you exist. I hope that hasn't been the case, but if it is, we're sorry. That isn't how we as Christians should view you or any human being created in the image of God who walks through the door. God has created every single human being on this planet, and he has an interest in each one, and so should we. Do you notice that God cares what goes on in our hearts and in our minds? Often we think about religion as just external things, the things that I do. Well, I go to church, I go to work, I provide for my needs and for the needs of my family, What more could God ask of me? See that God is concerned not just with what you do or don't do, but with what you think and with what goes on in your heart when you look at people. He cares about things that are below the surface, the things that you would hide if they would be exposed. Perhaps you're thinking, why does it matter how I look at people or even how I treat people? Well, The answer is because it matters to God. And we'll find in our next point that God isn't prejudiced. In fact, he loves people in astounding ways. And he loves all kinds of people in astounding ways. So point one was the sin of prejudice. Point number two is 
the love of God. This is verses 5 to 7. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James here holds out for us the love of God, which is in stark contrast with the sin of prejudice. He talks about the love of God by talking about who it is that God chooses to be his people. Who does God choose to be his people? Well, God talks about why he chose the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. He says, The Lord your God has chosen you, Israel, to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then he tells them why he chose them as a nation to be his people. He says in verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. That is, it's not because you were great. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why does God love people? Because he loves them. And he decides to love them. And the Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians about the kinds of people that God has chosen to be his children in the church. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That may not be a compliment to us in terms of us being God's people. Why are we God's people? Well, many of us are not rich. Most of us are not wise. Most of us are not noble. But God chose us so that he would be able to, through us, glorify himself and make himself known to be wise, to be great. It's not a compliment, but it's a wonderful perspective on how God loves. You see, when God saves people, he saves sinners. Because we're all, all of us, sinners. We are those that have rebelled against a holy God. So when God chooses any of us to be his people, it isn't just those who are good, because none of us are. And when he saves sinners, he doesn't decide who to save based on criteria that we would have approved, or criteria that we would use in judging other people. It's not the good-looking, not the rich, not the smart. No, he chooses those who are poor, those who are foolish, those who are weak. Sinners of every shape and size. Sinners from every language, from every nation, from every walk of life. Romans 5.8 says, A person would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though, perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love. There was a perspective in James' day, I think it's even a perspective in our day as well, that the rich are the ones who are right with God. The ones who were obviously being blessed by God. We see this in the Gospels as well. There's a a section where the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus after Jesus tells him to sell his possessions. And Jesus tells his disciples how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And the disciples are shocked by this statement. That Jesus would say it's difficult for rich people to, to get into heaven. And they ask the question, who then can be saved if the rich ones 
are barely getting in and they're the blessed ones, what about the rest of us? What about us poor fishermen? And Jesus says, no, it's hard for the rich to let go of their riches. It's hard for the rich to admit that they don't have it all figured out, that they aren't in control. It's hard for the rich to admit that they need to humble themselves before God. And actually, we find that it's in some ways easier for the poor to let go of the need for goods in this life because of the promise of riches in the next life. And that's how James talks about what it means to be a Christian. He says, those who are poor in the world, God has chosen. Doesn't mean he's chosen every poor person in the world. But that he has chosen poor people, as well as those who are more well-to-do, some. He says he's chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. And heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. You see, the tables are turned. When it comes to being a Christian, what it means is that you are rich in God's eyes and you will be rich in eternity. You will be a child of God and an heir of his kingdom forever. James blows holes in that theology that the rich are the ones that are right with God. In fact, the rich don't get off um, very well at all in these verses, verses 6 and 7. He reams out the rich. In verses 6 and 7. They're not portrayed in a good light at all. In a time when the church was being persecuted, in general, Christians were poor. They were being, according to Hebrews 13, kicked out of their houses, dragged off to jail, scattered like sheep. And when you're scattered, when you're displaced, when you're kicked out of your homes, when your goods are confiscated, it says in Hebrews 13, you're poor. Now, the early church had some Christians who were rich. There's a few mentioned. And often, churches would meet in their homes because they needed a place to meet. People like Philemon, people like Barnabas. But by and large, the church was made up of poor people. And James says the rich aren't better for being rich, so don't treat them as better than the poor. If God doesn't despise the poor, why should you? So, Christian, does the way that you treat people reflect the way that God has treated you in Christ? Does the way that you treat people reflect the way that God has treated you in Christ? He hasn't despised you for your sin. Don't despise others for their appearance. How are you doing, Christian, at loving your fellow believers? How are you doing at loving the many different kinds of people that are gathered in this church body? I'm going to ask a a tough question. What does your circle of friends look like? God loves people from many walks of life, many different places in life in terms of economic status, and from every nation on the earth. Does your circle of friends, as it's changing and expanding over time, does it look more and more like God's circle of friends? Are you able to relate to people outside of your first language, outside of your line of work, outside of your ethnicity, culture, outside of your place in life, whether you're single or married, married with kids? That is, does your circle of friends look just like you? People that are comfortable for you to be around? Or more and more like the body that God is gathering together for himself to be his people? How are you doing, Christian, at relating to non-Christians? As I I reflected on those first four verses, I have a sense that when James talks about these people coming into the assembly, these two men... A couple people asked me this week, are these believers or or unbelievers that James is talking about coming in? I'm not sure because James doesn't say, but I have a sense that they're unbelievers. And that's why he uses that funny phrase, don't hold our faith with partiality. When you show prejudice in the way that you relate to outsiders who are coming in, and at the same time holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the, the way the phrase works is don't hold the faith with partiality or hold the faith and show prejudice. Because when you do that, what you're saying is that God treats people with prejudice and God never does. How are you doing in relating to unbelievers? Do you treat them based on how they treat you? Or with love that reflects the love that you've received? Even when unbelievers sin against you, are you able to relate to them as Christ related to you, not as their sins deserve? Are you able to say, with mercy, I would be... I would be that person if it wasn't for the grace of God. I would be treating me that way if God hadn't changed my heart. And be able to have compassion on those who do not know Christ. And desire more than anything that they would know Christ. Even as we relate to the rich who don't know God. To be able to say, in your mind, your riches are nothing. What you need more than anything is for your poverty spiritually to be filled up with the riches of Christ. How are you doing in general with those who sin against you, whether they're believers or non-believers? How are you doing at forgiving people? Do you find it easy to, to hang on to grudges? To look at someone and all you see is that thing that they did to you once, that thing that they keep doing to you on a regular basis? Do you write people off based on how they've treated you? Do you always see them through a lens of the the sin and the offenses that they have done to you or to others? Or are you able to see them as Christ sees you, not as your sins deserve, but with mercy and grace? Now, as I I think about this illustration, as I think about these commands, I was thinking this week about my old job. I used to be a paralegal at a law firm. I I worked for lawyers in Washington, D.C., very high-powered lawyers, I was just kind of a measly assistant, helping them file their briefs in court, helping them when they go to court, checking their briefs to make sure there weren't any mistakes. These lawyers were important and rich, but they would often take on cases that they would take on pro bono. That is, they wouldn't charge for them. And they would do it, the idea pro bono is for the good, out of the goodness of their hearts, to do good to people who couldn't afford legal counsel. And they would take up the causes of people that needed it. And I think most of those lawyers, even though they were rich, very rich actually, would look at a passage like this, and these American lawyers I think would be offended by this passage as well. But I don't think for the same reasons. I think they would be offended by this passage Because of their concern for human rights and for their concern for the equality of all people, that all people would be treated equally. For Christians, that isn't our concern. As much as we might believe in the rights of all humans, which we do, and that people should be treated equally, which we do. The reason we take this so seriously isn't because of a standard of humanity where we want everybody to be equal our concern is how we live our lives in comparison with God because God takes prejudice seriously not because of the inequality that's shown and because all humans deserve a certain kind of treatment God takes prejudice seriously because we are his representatives in this world He has called us, his people, to represent him to the world, to look like him in this world. And when we show prejudice, we tell lies about what God is like, about what his love is like. So point number three is the last section, verses 8 to 13. James shows us, how seriously he takes this sin of prejudice by going on for another six verses about it. He thought he's already said so much in the first seven. Here's six more. Let me read this section. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality or prejudice, you are committing sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. God cares how you treat people because you represent him in this world. God has created us in his image. That means like him so that we could reflect him in this world. We who are God's children and God's people, though we are sinners and that image was broken, have had that image restored in such a way that we can reflect him in a way that's accurate in this world. And that's why James is so concerned with how we live our lives. Because we as God's people are the ones who should reflect him much better than the world is able to do it. Now, the law is talked about in two different ways in this section. It's a little confusing. I'm not going to be able to clear up all of the questions you might have about this section. The good thing is a bunch of it is foreshadowing to the passage that, Lord willing, we'll be looking at next week, the second half of James chapter 2. But the law is talked about in two ways. It's talked about in one place, in verse 12, about being a law of liberty. But most of the rest of the passage talks about the law as if it's something binding. So here it's referred to one place, a law that is freeing. Most of the rest of it has to do with the law being binding. What is James doing? Is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? Well, no. Because the law has two purposes, according to this passage. It's referred to as the law of liberty. It's kind of funny for us to think about, because we tend to think of laws as restricting, not freeing. When I want to think about freedom, I don't think about law. I think about some place apart from law or rules. Don't tell me what to do. Don't give me rules. I want to be free, right? He says God's law is a law of liberty. What in the world does that mean? I find that when we think about freedom, we don't think about rules, except maybe in one situation. And I, I see this a lot with, with teens who love to play sport or sports, depending on where you come from. Teens don't like rules, don't like laws, unless it comes to the sports that they love to play. And all of a sudden, they care a lot about the rules. They know all the rules. They know all the laws when it comes to the sport that they love. And when they play football, you've got to follow the rules. Don't even think about not following the rules. And don't be changing the rules. And don't be making up the rules as you go along. We all need to agree as to what the rules are. Because if we're going to have fun, we've got to keep the rules. Isn't that true? We all do that when we play games, when we play sports. All of a sudden, we care about rules. Why is that? Well, if you're going to have fun playing the sport, playing the game, it's only fun when everybody plays it inside of the rules. If you change it, it's, it's chaos. And in that situation, we get a glimpse into what James means by the law of liberty. You see, God gave his law to his people not originally to be binding or restricting, but to be freeing, to give them liberty. Because behind the law is a person, the lawgiver who is God. And what the law does is it reveals to us who he is, who God is, what he is like, and how it is that we as his creatures are to relate to him. And it's only by knowing his law and what he's like and how it is that we can relate to him that we can freely enjoy the relationship with him. Like that sport, like that game. That's why in Psalm 19 and in Psalm 119 and in Psalm 1 and in many other places in Scripture, God's people 
talk about his law as something sweet and something wonderful and something to be delighted in. Because they found his law freeing. Because inside of the law, what they found was this place of freedom where they could relate to God. Where they could know God. Where they could commune with God. And where they could have a right relationship with God. The problem is... We've all lost that freedom because we've all broken that law. And rather than being a place of freedom, that law now is for us a judgment court. And what James says is, if you break the law, you offend the person who gave the law. Because the law is a revelation of the person who is God. God didn't give us random rules and laws. He didn't give us laws that would frustrate us. He didn't give us rules just to annoy us. He gave us rules that helped us to understand who he is, what he is like, and what he expects of us, his creatures, that he made for himself. And when we break the law, any law, even this sin of prejudice, once we are guilty before the lawgiver, God, and he will hold us accountable For having broken the whole thing. And what that means is all of us are no longer in a place of freedom. But in a place of judgment. All of us. And what hope is there. For those of us who stand under God's judgment seat. There's no hope at all. There's only condemnation. Unless God would show us mercy. And he's done that in Christ. It would have been right for God to judge every single sinner, every single human on the planet, every single human throughout all of history. It would be right for him to hold us accountable for our sins and to treat us as our sins deserve, to give us the full extent of the law, which is separation from him and punishment for all eternity. Because to sin against an infinite God is to receive his infinite punishment. But God did something wonderful. Rather than closing the book on us, he put together a plan where he would be able to do a wonderful thing. At the same time, be perfectly just and perfectly merciful to sinners. And that can only happen through Christ. And what is the plan? How can God do that at the same time? He doesn't eliminate his justice. He's always perfectly just. He sent Jesus, his son, to earth to become a man. At the same time, God and man. And he came, and for him, the law was the law of liberty. It was the law of freedom. And he perfectly kept it throughout his life here on earth. He was the only man to ever walk this earth and to perfectly obey God every moment of his life. And then he did an amazing thing. He took the punishment that sinners, that criminals deserve, you and I deserve, and he took that on the cross. He didn't deserve it. It was unjust for him to be punished like a criminal because he was perfect. But he did it so that sinners, criminals like us, could be forgiven. He did it in the place of sinners. And how do we receive that mercy? Well, we give up all hope of ever being right with God based on what we do. And we put all of our hopes on Christ and on what he did in his perfect life in his perfect death, and in his resurrection from the grave. And then, mercy triumphs over judgment in your life. How does it happen? By the merciful one, Jesus Christ, going through judgment. And then showing mercy to sinners like us. There's a a parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 18. It's well known to us, I assume parable of the unmerciful servant. Do you remember it? There's a a man who owes an unbelievable amount of money to his boss. Hundreds of thousands of dirhams. And his boss does the most unexpected thing. 
rather than demanding it of him, rather than throwing him into jail. He forgives him the debt. Unbelievable. He clears his debt. Here's this man who's been under this load of debts, a debt that he could never think of repaying on his current salary. And his boss just clears it. What's striking about the passage is the next thing that this guy does, he's received mercy. Is he goes out and he finds someone that owes him the smallest amount of money that you could think of, and he throws the book at him. He drags him to the courts and he has him put into jail. What is the point of this parable? Jesus says, My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And we're going to talk next week a little bit about this part here about judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But let me summarize it really simply for you. Those that have received great mercy become merciful people. That is, when we experience the mercy of God, when we experience great mercy, and when we realize all that we have been forgiven of through Christ, it changes the way that we view everything, and it changes the way that we view everyone. I don't know what kind of person you are, how judgmental you are. Don't put your hope in judgment. For if you were to put all of your hope in judgment, you would be hopeless. But if you put your hope in the merciful one, Jesus Christ, his mercy will forgive you and his mercy will change you to such an extent that you're able to show mercy to everyone that you come across. Redeemer Church, let's not be a judgmental people. Let's not be a prejudiced people. Let us be a people that look like the merciful God that we love and have been changed by. Let us show love and mercy to everyone here, to everyone we see, to anyone that would come into our assembly. Let us go to the Lord and pray. Father, your mercy is unfathomable. How you could love sinners like us. How you could have mercy on such criminals like us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his willingness to humble himself and to undergo unjust treatment to show mercy to sinners like us. Father, may you be so changing us by the experience of mercy that we would be merciful people. Only you can do this. We pray that you would do it by the help of your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.